I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So tonight we're going to finish our series on contradictions in the Bible by dealing with the biggest Bible contradictions. The biggest Bible contradictions. So in the past, this is the third week we've dealt with contradictions. And in the past, I've dealt with some dealing with specifically the Gospels, specifically the... um, the resurrection accounts. Uh, I've dealt with other ones that are really common. I got them off atheist websites, atheist sources, so hostile sources to the Bible. But this time what I've done is I've sort of saved in this month or so, as well as years and years of doing this stuff, I've saved what I consider to be the hardest or most difficult of these, including my my agreement with you guys and t- with myself was if I have a, tr- a contradiction, a supposed contradiction, that I cannot reconcile, that I would simply be honest about it. Um, so here we go. Number one, let's just dig right in. Cause this is going to take a little while. Number one, <clears throat> does God change? This is, this is, uh, all from atheist sources here, but does God change? One answer would be no. Malachi three, six says for I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob are not consumed, but then you get a yes answer. If you look at Exodus thirty two fourteen. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm, which he said he would do to his people. Um, so this is actually a very common uh, supposed contradiction that's brought up. Some people consider it to be a very big deal. And the solution is, what does Malachi mean by change? When he says, I, the Lord, do not change, what does that really mean? And the answer is, well, God's good character is unchanging, so he is therefore reliable. God does respond to our repentance, and I'm very thankful for this. I don't consider God responding to my repentance as God changing. He didn't change. I changed, and therefore, I will not be destroyed. The error the skeptics are making is acting like, and think about this, acting like the word unchanging means God can never forgive, heal, create, judge, or do anything because any act necessitates a change of some kind. I mean, any action of any kind requires a change in some sense of the word. God created. Okay, so he went from not creating to creating. He changed. Like this is obviously the Bible doesn't mean God doesn't change in those senses. What it means is his character does not change. So God's character, which includes forgiving those who repent, that still hasn't changed. He still forgives those who repent, just as he did with Exodus uh, 32. So the very next verse in Malachi actually proves this to be true, just in case you want to see something in the very context of Malachi that's being quoted. Look at Malachi. 3, 6, and 7. It says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet, from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. What is this? Because I don't change, you can repent, and then I will, in a different type of sense, change my attitude and behavior towards you. You're under judgment, but then you'll be under grace. So this is perfectly perfectly uh, consistent. It's exactly the change they say, the skeptics say that Malachi won't allow, is the very thing in the very next verse that God says he is going to do, which is his unchanging quality means that he will change the fact that you're going to be judged if you repent. That's, that's what it really means. I think that if we don't allow immediate context to clarify the statements that are in the Bible, we're fools. You can't read Malachi 3.6 and not allow Malachi 3.7 to inform you what 3.6 was talking about. That's, that's just utterly foolish. We have to avoid preschool theology. And this is actually something we get a lot. All the time, skeptics will attack Christianity, attack the Bible with a preschool theology put up against college-level questions. Adult-type questions being attacked with preschool theology. You know, it'd be like... Um, does your mommy love you all the time? Yes, of course she does. Well, then why does she spank you? I don't know. I guess she doesn't love me. And you're like, well, no, it's, maybe it's more complicated than that. You know, maybe there's a little more to it than that. And so here we go. Number two, is God good to all? Is God good to all? This is right off the atheist websites here. Um, no, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But yes, he is good to all. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So what is the solution here? What is the solution between this supposed contradiction? Well, good to all is not to be taken as 
God only does nice things all the time to everyone. Because, for instance, let's say that you are, you are good to all people. But one day you come home and you find someone beating your child to death. And so you karate chop their face <laughs> and knock them unconscious. And they go, I thought you were always good to people. <laughs> and you're like, well, I didn't shoot you. You know, this is, that was pretty good. That was pretty good to you at that, at that point in time. No, um, the skeptics error, again, preschool theology versus adult level questions. Is God good to all? Psalm 145, verse 9, is taken like really sort of childishly to mean good to all means only nice things all the time. Yet, Psalm 145 obviously doesn't mean that God won't judge people because look at the very next verses. It says, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So obviously the author of the psalm isn't meaning good to all in the sense that the atheist or skeptic wants the author to mean it. Rather, they're sort of trying to find a problem where there really isn't one. Also, I should point out, Exodus 20, it does not mean God is just a big meanie who's not good to people at all. That's not what Exodus 20 means. Let's look at it now with the verse that follows the one quoted from the atheist website. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you, do you see that the, the context is actually showing that God, and this is consistent throughout scripture, he delays judgment, but he's quick to forgive. But yet there is consequences. You, you will suffer and your children will suffer because of your sins. That's just the reality of life. But yet, if even one of you turns to the Lord, there's, there's blessings for even, even more people than would have suffered from the sin. It's, in other words, there's more mercy and grace than there is judgment and wrath. And that's actually a, a great thing. So the skeptics... This is going to come up several times tonight. The skeptics often have really bad theology. They, they, um, a Christian online like myself defending the Christian faith, whether it's in, on, on, on YouTube or if it's on Yahoo Answers like I used to do or wherever it's at on Facebook, so often what you're doing is responding to a skeptical attack and you're trying to say, okay, first, we don't believe what you said we believe as Christians. Second, everything else you say falls apart because, because that was a straw man. That was a fake version of Christianity that you set up and attacked. But we don't believe that, so we're not going to defend it. That happens so much. And here's another example. There are what I would call uh, theological contradictions. There's a whole group of contradictions that get brought up where someone makes bad theology in one section of the Bible, then makes other bad theology in another section of the Bible, and then says, see, they contradict each other. Here's an example from my uh, atheist in point, my favorite atheist, Bart Ehrman. <laughs> Bart Ehrman, uh, the author of Forged, of uh, Misquoting Jesus, Jesus Interrupted, other books that all of them attack the idea of, of Christian faith. And I've covered a lot of his stuff throughout the series on evidence for the Bible because he's like the premier attacker of the Bible in the world right now. So in, as far as I can tell, he says this about a supposed contradiction in the Gospels between Mark and Luke. He says this, Jesus goes to a painful and humiliating death, unsure of why it's happening to him in Mark's gospel. So is Jesus in despair and confusion? He doesn't, this is a direct quote, word for word. This is what Bart Ehrman says. Then he says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is more concerned about the women than he is about his own fate. As he says to them, uh, women, don't worry about me, worry about yourselves. <laughs> then, and here's his crowning example, because he gives a list of things in Mark that to him show that Jesus is in despair and confusion. He doesn't even know why he's dying. And Bart Ehrman gives a list of these things. And then he says, but in Luke, he knows exactly what's going on. He's totally in control. Here's his crowning example. He says, at the end, most telling of all in Luke's gospel, instead of crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he dies. Now, Bart thinks that Jesus crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is... Jesus saying, see, I'm confused, I don't know what's going on, and I'm in total despair. Now, this is a whole different issue as he ignores Psalm 22, which is what Jesus is quoting. He's drawing attention to Psalm 22, which is completely changes your interpretation of what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, <laughs> fulfilling the, this psalm, and I'm suffering, and yet God will answer me, and I will rise, and all this glorious stuff, and my name will be proclaimed to the Gentiles. And that's one of our previous videos in the series of Psalm 22. Now you go... Bart, I just want to harmonize the scripture. I'll just harmonize. I'll take Luke and Mark and Matthew and, and John and put them all together and say, this is the whole story. And he says, well, now you're free to do that if you want. 
to take all four Gospels and smash them together into one big Gospel. It's a free world. You can do that if you want, but realize what you're doing. You are writing your own Gospel instead of accepting the Gospels that have come to you. Now this kind of hits you like sideways. You're like, whoa, like you're not even allowed to harmonize the Scriptures. So let's look at Bart's presentation. Now he is a scholar, a well-respected, well-known, smart guy, right? Bart Ehrman. But look at how he misrepresents seemingly intentionally what the Bible says. Here's the solution. Read the Bible. Mark 14 verse 18. Was Jesus in despair and confusion here? And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Is he confused about what's going to happen or is he predicting the thing that's going to happen next that supposedly is going to cause him confusion and despair? Mark 14, 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, uh, good for that man if he had not been born. In Luke, Jesus is more concerned about the women than he is of himself. Here in Mark, he's worried more about the fate of Judas, the one betraying him. That seems consistent to me. In Mark 14, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Does he know what's happening? This is, this is those, that moment that Bart's talking about right before the crucifixion. Truly, I say to you that I will, I will never drink, again drink, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I have a different, I have the New King James Version in my brain, and I'm quoting the NASB, so sometimes you like accidentally substitute words, so forgive me if I do that. <clears throat> I just, I mixed up which versions I use for no particular reason, but, except that I don't want to quote from one version too much and then get a copyright notice, <laughs> so that's the truth. Um, then, okay, so obviously Jesus knows he's offering his blood, he knows he's going to die for many, and he also knows what? I'm going to see you guys again, I'll be eating with you in the kingdom of God, so he has hope for the future. He's not in despair, not in the sense in which Bart says. Again, Mark 14, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. How do I interpret this to mean he's despair and confused? He doesn't know what's going on. Why am I dying again? What's hap what happens next? Father, why have you forsaken me? No, clearly this is just a distortion. Uh, Mark 14 again, it says, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now let us run away, because I'm confused and in despair. Nope. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he marches right into the hands of the betrayer, because this is part of the plan that he is well aware of, that he's actually helping orchestrate. So that would be the actual statement from Mark. And again, and this is all just from the very end of Mark. We could go through the whole Gospel of Mark and have even more evidence, but just here. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? This is with the crowd who is coming to get him. As you would against a robber. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. He sees these events as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that he is partaking of. So it's not despair, it's not confusion. It's, it's a divine arrangement of, of events. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says this in Mark. He obviously knows what's going on. He obviously knows he's not um, permanently forsaken. Psalm 22, read the whole psalm and you'll see why he quoted it. Um, it was about his messianic nature. So what's the solution? Um, the solution is do not let Bart Ehrman teach you theology. The skeptic's error being really bad at theology. I mean, this is bad, bad, bad theology, Bart. Bad Bart. This is not right. A principle that we can learn is this. Bible skeptics are generally inconsistent. And I want to demonstrate this next. Um, they apply a skeptical attitude to the Bible, which they would never apply to other things. Imagine if Bart applied this skeptical attitude to other areas of life. In fact, let me give you an example. Let's say that the contradiction was about 9-11 and not about the Bible. And the question was, what really happened on 9-11? And instead of uh, Bart... Ehrman, I have, I have Mart Furman here. And here's this guy, and he says, and I'm going to follow exactly the consistent way of thinking that Bart Ehrman has with the Bible. And he says, in one video, the plane comes from the left. 
In another, it's on the right. Which is it? In one video, the plane banks sharply into the building. In another, it flies straight into the building. Which is it? In one video, there's multiple planes. In another video, there's only one plane. Which is it? In other accounts, it says it was the Pentagon, not the towers, which were hit by the plane. To make things worse, we have accounts of the plane failing to hit any building at all. Look at these contradictory accounts. Here's one flight, flight plan that they've supposedly come up with from 9-11. Here's a different flight plan. Well, which one is it? Well, here's a different flight plan with a different takeoff and landing point. Then there's another flight plan. There's four different supposed flight plans. Which one is the right one? Add to all this the confusing fact that four different flights are given credit for being hijacked and two different planes. Which flight was it? American Airlines 11 or 77? Was it United 175 or United Airlines 93? Which was it? Which model airplane was it? The Boeing 767 or the Boeing 757? I mean, this is pretty much what Bart Ehrman does with the Bible. He, he takes and rips the, the accounts apart and then tries to uh, pose them against one another in a very artificial way. So you might respond by saying, well, we, we harmonize these accounts. Oh, well, some investigators take all the footage and witness accounts and smash them together into one account where you have multiple planes hitting from different directions, multiple targets, and one plane failing to hit its target at all. But then you've made your own video because none of the videos show that. This is the type, the type of obnoxious stuff that, in all honesty, I hear when I hear so many people try to say there's contradictions in the Bible. And then they come up with such horrible examples as, let's remind ourselves, their best examples. When your best examples are bad examples, you're wrong. That seems to be a good rule of life. <laughs> good rule of life, you know. So let's look at number four. Has anyone seen God? Has anyone seen God? This is one that has stumbled a lot of people. Um, this is, would be on the list of the biggest supposed contradictions. No, no one has seen God. John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 6.46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. John, uh, 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. He's really here quoting himself. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then Exodus 33.20, but he said, God speaking, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So this is pretty consistent. You can't see God. Yet, this, is, this appears to be a contradiction because Genesis 32, 30, it says, For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob speaking here. Claims that he saw God. Exodus 33, 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So did Moses see God? Isaiah 6, 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. He saw the Lord. He saw the, the train of the robe of the Lord. Job 42, 5, Job says, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So what's the solution here? This seems to be a complete contradiction. It does look that way, especially when you pull these things out of context and put them together in this particular fashion. Well, the solution is greater context. Let's, let's look a little more carefully at the passage. John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, the word see in the Greek or Hebrew, they use it many, in many ways just like we do today. Do you see? Oh, I see. You know, it, you know I see to the blind man to his deaf wife. The, the, old, the, old, <laughs> the old joke goes. I, I never quite understood, but there it is. It's used in a lot of different ways. We use see in many, many different ways. Um, and that is sort of the key to understanding. How is it that you could say, no one can see me, yet that guy says, I saw him. Because you can see things and not see them. Jesus reinforced this, right? He says, I speak to them in parables so that seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not hear. What is he saying? Oh, yeah, they see and they hear, but they don't really understand. Oh, I see. It's, it's very different. It's very different. So C is used in the same way to them as we use it today. Now, the word explained, because this is a contrast, right? Nobody's seen God, but Jesus, he has explained him. That's the word exegeomai. And I put the Greek up there just 
because I rarely do, and I just thought someone would be like, you can't really, I just so I just put it up there. But it means tell fully, to make fully known, in order to, to fully explain something, and now I really know it. So this is John's use. This is how John is using his word see. He goes, no one's seen God, but Jesus, he's made him fully known. So what do you think he means by see God if the counterpoint is made him fully known? He's talking about see in the sense of knowledge or understanding. That's John's use. To take it otherwise would be odd. Think about if it was this. Jesus saw God and came to tell us what God looks like. But he didn't even do that. He never described an appearance of what the Father looked like. No, he says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. You've seen me, what? Not the Father looks like this, but you've seen my actions. You've you've known me. I, you know, if you know me, you know the Father. So it has to do with the um, understanding, the to know fully, to know really truly well. That's what he's talking about. In John 6, 46, it's consistent. It's the same type of thing. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He has seen the Father fully known. Only Jesus could fully teach us about the Father. Every other human God used didn't know the Father the way Jesus did. And so it was a, a, an incomplete revelation of God until we see the Son. He's the full revelation of the Father. So that's consistent. Also, Jesus and John are both familiar with Old Testament visions of God. Do you think Jesus or John don't know that Isaiah saw the Lord? Seated on the throne? Are they, are they ignorant of these things? I mean, how is it that they quote the Old Testament constantly, but they're not aware of this? Of course they know. Of course they're familiar with this stuff. So Jesus has fully known the Father. That's the point. That's how he's seen the Father. And no human has done that. No human's done that. So we, through Jesus, we can know the Father. We have access to the Father through him. Then when you get to Exodus thirty three twenty, it says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. This actually helps explain things. See, there's a sense in which God can be seen and another sense in which God cannot be seen. That's kind of the whole point. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? There's, okay, there's a sense in which I can see God, full knowledge of who God is. There's another sense in which I could see him. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, but I didn't walk away with this full revelation of everything God is. I wouldn't be able to handle this. I would die. So to reinforce this, I have a special magical device that I like to pull out whenever contradictions come up. It's called context. So let's write Exodus 33, 20. That's where God says, you can't see me. Let's just continue reading verse 21. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now let's be clear. God is not, does not have a physical human body. The Bible is clear about this. This is called anthropomorphism. Uh, he's just trying to speak to us in ways that make sense. He's like, cover you with my hand. You'll see my back. You won't fully see all that I am, but I'll give you a glimpse of who I am. Boy, that's totally consistent with what John's doing. Totally consistent with Exodus. It's consistent with all of these things. Um, earlier in the same chapter, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Remember that was supposedly, well, this says he did see God face to face. Yeah, it's the same chapter. So it doesn't mean face-to-face -face in the same sense. It means face-to-face. -face. Like Moses would talk to God and God would answer. He'd be like, God, da 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 God, I mean, usually I don't get to talk to God like that. <laughs> usually I pray and I'm like, Lord, you know, I'd, I'd be awesome if we could just have a straight conversation. But it's after this that Moses asks to see God because the face-to-face -face wasn't the full revelation of God. And Moses goes, I like the full revelation. No, 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 you'll die. Only Jesus has the full revelation of God, but he'll come and he'll bring it to you. Oh, harmony. It works, right? So Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Job, their visions or their seeing God is all consistent with a vision or less and not a full revelation like what we have in Jesus. So the Bible's harmonized here. It makes sense. In fact, Job, he sees a whirlwind and he says, I've seen God. He means I've seen the power of God in this, in this crazy whirlwind. Now I'm humbled. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He says, I've seen God. Um, is that a full revelation? Obviously not. So uh, number five. Do I bear my burden or do I bear others? The burden of others. Bear others' burdens, Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Each bears his own burden, Galatians 6.5. For each one will bear his own load. Yes, I did not make this up. This is Some atheists thought this was such a strong argument against the Bible that they put it on a website and published it and left it in print. The solution is both. And you would never interpret other writings like this. Have you noticed that we're talking about Galatians 6.2 and Galatians 6.5? Yeah. 
So often, skeptics prove that they're irrational and inconsistent. Not every skeptic, certainly not every skeptic, but most often the ones that are going out vocally and actively attacking the Bible are this way. Is Paul such a fool that he doesn't remember what he wrote only seconds before? He really doesn't know. He's like, bear one another's burdens. And later he's like, forget that. Don't bear anyone's burdens. You bear your own, man. You really? That's, he's a schizophrenic. That's, that's, that's the solution. Or is it rather, hey, we all have burdens to bear, so let's help each other out with them. Let's bear one another's burdens. Because you're all going to be bearing your own load. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be carrying a load, so we'll help each other out. That seems more reasonable to me. Number six, should I obey government or not? I'm sorry if this sounds silly, but this is just what they come up with. First um, Peter 2.13, submit yourselves to the Lord, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, and then it goes on, to, or to those he sends, and it just lists all the authorities. So submit, yield, obey, yield to government. This is a strong Christian principle we're supposed to yield. Or should we disobey? Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So now we're going to disobey the authorities. We're not going to do what you say. What's the solution? Well, the solution is, these are both accurate and true. And here's, here's how you put it together. We obey authorities until they ask you to disobey God because God is the highest authority. So I'm like going to obey, I'm going to honor my parents. What if your parents tell you to go and murder someone? Well, I must obey God rather than man. But you're supposed to honor your parents. You're like, well, yes, well, you've put me in quite a situation, haven't you? Like, I'm not going to honor you sinning against God to bring you that honor. I'm not going to obey government in order to, uh, and cause me to disobey God and then say God told me to obey government. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, this is exactly the situation with Peter. Right? Peter is the one speaking in Acts 5.29. Did you know that? He's the one writing in 1 Peter 2.13. And he's like, obey government. But there is this one exception I'm glad there is that when government tells you to disobey God, you obey God, not government. And may I add, right? Peter's both the author of first Peter and the person quoted in Acts 529. Is he really that confused <laughs> about things? No, obviously these harmonize. Uh, it, it just makes sense. It makes sense. What you have is a full teaching, but rather the skeptic, again, they want a preschool theology, obey government. And there's no exceptions to the rule. There's no situation where, where this might call into question. Like if government says, Betray Christ. Kill your child. Obey government. Like, is that really, that's really the theology that, that you are going to try to foist upon us as Christians? That's not our theology, thankfully. Number seven, kill or don't kill. I hear this one so much. Um, there's an atheist named Dan Barker who goes out and he does debates with Christians and he writes articles and writes books attacking Christianity and the Bible. Um, he's well known. Dan Barker has this, a list of contradictions on his website, uh, the FFRC, Freedom From Religion Coalition. Freedom From, not for. Freedom From Religion Coalition. And they, they, they're the ones that are like, we want totally to secularize America. We don't want any religion involved anywhere. So, so this is his first one. Number one on this list of contradictions, supposed contradictions. So is it kill or don't kill? Well, the Bible says you shall not murder. Wait a minute. No, that translation's, no, that one says murder. Hold on. Hold on. Wait a minute. They all say Murder. There we go. Got one that helps us out here. All right. In the King James Version, it says, thou shalt not kill. There we go. Now we can, now we can have our preschool theology, right? Thou shalt not kill. Yet, in Exodus 21, it says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint you a place at which he may flee. And then it goes on and talks about uh, murder versus manslaughter and the death penalty. Wait, God says, don't kill, but then he commands the death penalty. Yes, well, obviously, this is dumb. I am amazed that somebody would even bring this as an accusation. If I brought these types of accusations against atheists or Islam or against Jehovah's Witness teachings or some of the issues of Catholicism, I would be horribly embarrassed about myself and my bad reasoning abilities. I would be embarrassed for the cause of Christianity if I was showcasing our strong case, and that was it. This is really dumb. In context, the, the Hebrew word translated most often, you shall not murder. It cannot mean killing under any and all circumstances is forbidden. Because yet in the very context, Exodus 20, Exodus 21, he tells them when they are to kill. Scripture says there is a time to kill. 
So the teaching is not never, ever kill. The Bible does not teach pacifism. Christian pacifism is not really a Christian value. Um, complete and utter nonviolence in the face of evil is itself evil. You, you need to act and we need to protect those who are being wounded and hurt and fallen down. We need to guard over our families. And I, I am to lay my life down for my, for my friend, even if that means he's being assaulted and I get in, in between that. There is such a thing as a just war. This is all consistent with scripture. So the, the solution here would be to actually think and reason <laughs> and not force. Oh, I, you get a little frustrated with looking at all these supposed contradictions after a while. Because you're just like, really? Really? McFly? Like, really? This is what you're doing? All right, number eight. How old was Ahaziah when he became king? Here's one that's, that's definitely more difficult, not just a, a, a theological trickery. Um, was Ahaziah 22 when he became king, like it says in 2 Kings? He was 22 years old. Or was he 42, like it says in 2 Chronicles? Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, right? And it says, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. The implication is this is talking about the same guy, this, the same environment, and everything like that. What's the solution? This is a, a new one for you guys. I haven't brought one of these to you yet, but this is a solution that the issue is copyist error. Copyist error. The evidence for this is that there are some manuscripts of the Septuagint and the Syriac that read 22 in the, in the previous passage that said 42 in the one we have now. Now, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But that Greek translation actually predates Jesus and predates even the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have today. So the Septuagint has some, some credibility to it. In fact, the Septuagint most often is what the apostles are quoting when they quote scripture. They quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this is probably a copyist error. That's why many translations actually nowadays will say 22 in Second Chronicles and in both passages. Uh, not because they're trying to, they're, they actually have legitimate textual reasons to think so. Copyist errors uh, come up several times, and it's especially with numbers, especially with numbers. Um, and I'll explain why in just a second. Let's look at another one for an example. How many stalls did Solomon have? Did Solomon have 40,000, like 1 Kings? Or did Solomon have 4,000 stalls, like Second Chronicles? So he had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, or had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots? The solution here, again, this is another example of a copyist mistake. Now, this is not a convenient, like, well, whenever we can't have an answer, we'll say, copyist mistake. It's, that's not what we're doing here. There's a, evidential reasons to say this. It's a reasonable cop, copyist mistake. An extra zero, in particular, is an easiest cop, easy copyist mistake. Writing numbers in ancient Hebrew, they use letters for the numbers. Now, we've discovered ancient manuscripts, and we often find them with worms having eaten through an entire stack of papers, you know, eaten through a whole scroll. And so you unroll it and you've got a bunch of little holes in it. Now, if you're telling a story, like I went to the market, well, probably that was a T there. He went to the market. It's easy. I went to the market and I brought, I bought 30 something apples, 30 apples, 32 apples, three and a half apples. What number went there? There's no context to help tell you this. And so numbers are the easiest thing to lose when you have some de degradation in the manuscript. Um, and so this is well known. This is why some Greek manuscripts at this issue say that 1 Kings, he had 4,000, not 40,000. It'd be very easy to just have an order of magnitude in particular is a really easy copyist mistake to have. Um, I don't know if you could even blame the copyist if, it's, if it was just a degraded copy he was copying from. And there's no... There's no um, uh, there's maybe nothing for him to do except do his best guess at what was what was what went where this hole is <laughs> where this worm ate through the page you know other people have other solutions for this particular one so I'll just I'll present them to you other people say that this is two different things that are counted horse stalls or chariot stalls and the the wording is slightly different uh, stalls of horses for his chariots or stalls for horses and chariots some people think it was it was 10 horses and a chariot in one larger stall. So you have 40,000 horse stalls and 4,000 chariot stalls is what it comes out to. I'm not convinced that that's the case, but I suppose that's a possibility. Other people, um, they think that one count is early in Solomon's reign and the other counts later in Solomon's reign. He started with 4,000 and ended with 40,000. We know Solomon was the most financially prosperous king Israel ever had. He had huge prosperity through, the, through his reign. That seems to me less likely, but you, you could throw it out there as a possibility. 
But since we have this issue of copyist errors, and it'll come up, I'm not going to do a whole host of, of number issues, this number compared to that number, this number compared to that number, because it's just so, um, in my mind, easily explained by copyist errors. Here's the question that brings up, though. Do copyist errors mean that the Bible itself is in error? You have to understand the doctrine that Christians have about the Bible is that it is without error in its original manuscripts. That's important and it's not a cop-out because if an error can be shown to draw back to the original manuscript, that's a problem. But an, a copyist error doesn't draw back to the original. Let me put it this way. If, if a problem exists in a copy where the copyist failed to accurately copy the text, that's not a problem with the original, is it? Okay, so we're looking at the originals. Now we have, if you have an original, then you have 50,000 copies of it. And some of them have this inconsequential error, 40,000 or 4,000. I mean, it doesn't actually change anything in life, but, but it has this error. And you can trace it back and go, yeah, it was probably just a copyist issue. Should you have less faith and trust in the original text itself? Only if your faith is incredibly weak. Um, and if your faith is that weak, then, then there's a different issue going on. It's not an intellectual problem you're facing. That's, that's a different kind of issue. If, if you could, I, I've met people who say, I don't even know if I'm really here. I'm doubting everything in life. Yet they're eating food to get fuel. You know what I mean? So obviously there's something's going on here that's confused. And it's not just an evidence issue. So number 10, did Paul's men hear a voice? I've heard this one so many times through life. Acts 9, 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So they heard a voice. Or did they not hear a voice? Paul telling the same story later on, Acts 22. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So they heard a voice or they didn't hear a voice. What's the solution? The solution is that these words are simply being used in different senses. Different senses. Um, Acts 9.7 reveals that they heard the sound of the voice. Acts 22.9 reveals they did not understand what the voice said. Is that a consistent use of the word see or hear? Yes, it is. In fact, see and hear, are they so wooden that they can never be used in the same way we use them today? Did you hear the voice? Oh, yeah, no, I heard what he said. So what did he say? Well, I didn't hear what he said. I heard him talking, but I didn't hear what he said. That's the context, right? Let me give you some examples of scripture using it like this so you understand their context. Matthew 13, verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see. I referenced this earlier. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Contradiction. Jesus is contradicting. I mean, this is what the skeptic would say, right? <laughs> well, do they see you or do they not see you, Jesus? Do they hear you or do they not hear you? Obviously, they're being used in different senses. Here's another one from Revelation 1.15. It says, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice, that's the Greek word phone, as the sound, same Greek word, phone, of many waters. His voice as the voice of many waters. You're using the same word in different senses, in the same context that you might... Uh, have a problem with if you had atheistic assumptions. Also, Luke wrote the whole thing. Luke wrote this whole thing. Acts is all written by one author. And this exposes to me the, a, a real serious issue in skepticism. It's the assumption of contradiction without allowing for harmonization. We saw Bart Ehrman do that. You can try to harmonize the account, but you wrote your own gospel. He, he will not allow it. You're never allowed to harmonize accounts. But it's exactly the, the concept of harmonizing accounts that led, um, has led many people to come to Christ. As they study the examples of the Bible, the, the supposed contradictions, and they go, well, the, the, hold on, this is just a historical account from four different perspectives. And then they come together. And um, the, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book that was, just recently came out that I, I highly would recommend checking it out. Um, Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. He's a, what he, they call him the evidence whisperer, this guy. He worked for 30 years and doing cold cases back before... I mean, he started cold cases before they were really doing them in real life, not in a TV show. And he never lost a case. Every case he ever brought, it was it, it successfully was prosecuted. And what did he do? He was called the evidence whisperer because he would look at old accounts, sometimes 30 years old. Uh, so it would be an account of a witness where the witness was now dead and the cop that interviewed him was also dead. And so he's like, all I've got is this. I can't even ask questions. So he would take this account, that account, that account, that account, and he would... Try to harmonize them to put together what really happened and search for more evidence. And he was extremely successful in this. Well, he was an atheist, but when he came to uh, examine the Bible, he decided he would apply his investigator skills to the gospel accounts, and he ended up coming to Christ. 
And he's done a lot of apologetics work since then. And it's pretty exciting stuff. As well as it's written in like sort of a crime, you know, genre stuff. His books are, he tells lots of detective, detective stories and people enjoy that. So Cold Case Christianity, he's got a few other books as well. So there we go. Uh, number 11, who killed Saul? Who killed Saul? Did Saul kill Saul, as it says in 1 Samuel 31 verses 4 and 5? It says, um, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. Because he was losing the battle and the, the, other, the enemy military was going was gonna to overtake. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. He stabs himself. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. But then we get later a story, same, uh, same author, Samuel, and it goes like this. And a Malachite shows up to David. We don't get the guy's name, but he shows up to talk to David and tells him this story. Then the young man, man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. So same situation. The enemy's going to approach him and overtake him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and answered, Here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Notice that line. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And David wasn't too happy about this. He kills the guy for striking the Lord's anointed. Um, but the solution is what? Saul fell on his sword and was finished off by the Amalekite. Why? Because it fits. Because it fits. I mean, look at what the Amalekites said. I found Saul. He was already dying. He had already fallen. And he was, he was on his way to die. And so then I came and I finished him off. And then I brought, he thought, oh, I've lucked. I can deliver David the, the, the crown and stuff. I can basically make, make myself like the new, the new important guy in the kingdom by doing this. And it backfired, of course. So Saul fell in his own sword and was finished off by the Amalekite. That fits. Then what happened was, see, Saul's armor bearer, it makes sense. Uh, Saul falls on his sword. He's slowly dying, but he hasn't died. I'm not going to finish him off. I refuse to strike God's anointed, but I'm his armor bearer, so I'm going to wait here till he dies. So then the Amalekite comes, up, comes by, strikes him down. Saul's armor bearer kills himself. Then the enemy comes in, and then he runs off. It, it fits. It harmonizes perfectly. Some people say that an alternate solution is that the Amalekite lied to get in with David, and he merely found Saul dead or dying and then stole the stuff. Because we have the, the account of this guy. We don't, we don't have any biblical statement that it was true. But if it is true, it harmonizes well. The other possibility is that he was just lying to get in with David. Like, make his story even better. Not only did I find his stuff, but oh, I finished him off for you, David. I delivered you the kingdom. Um, that's a possibility. Number 12. Number 12. We've got five more. <laughs> Number 12. Did Michael have children? Did Michael have children? No. Michael did not have children. This is not me we're talking about here. Really. This is a female. Her name is Michael. And it says in 2 Samuel, Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Her and David had a, a falling out. And he's like, you'll be childless. And so she had no children to the day of her death. Or did she have children? 2 Samuel. It says, so the king took Armoni, the daughter of Mephibosheth. Try to say that five times fast. The two sons of Rizpah, the daughters of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. So she had five sons. Well, which one was it? Well, here's the solution. Michael raised her sister's children. Her sister's children. So it came about at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. So Michael's here raising the five, the five children whom she brought up for Adriel, the Maholothite. That was her sister's husband. Let me, I'll go back and show it to you again. The five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. That was her sister's husband. So she's probably not raising up her own kids, but her sisters. Maybe she passed away. It, she was at the organ trail and she got dysentery and died. and uh, Or something like that. The Hebrew word that's translated brought up is legitimately used of a birth mother, a nanny, or an adopted parent. It's a Hebrew word that's used for lots of things, and including 
a legit birth mother. So the five sons of whom she brought up or bore to or nannied or adopted, all of those translations are entirely appropriate. Um, there's an alternate solution that some people think this is also a scribal error. And there are, we have two Hebrew manuscripts and also some of the Septuagint manuscripts that say Mirab instead of Michael in 2 Samuel 18. So it may, it may be that it was a scribal error or that she raised up her, uh, her sister's kids. Either one makes sense and the passage seems consistent. We know that the guy was her sister's husband, not hers. That's confirmed. Um, that's why the NASB, ESV, and these other translations, they follow that reading and they actually just say Mirab instead of Michael in that passage. So we've talked in the past about manuscript issues, and so hopefully that just makes sense to you and isn't confusing. Where did they go after feeding the 5,000? Now this is, we talked about best examples. This is a Dr. Mike Lycona, who's a mostly conservative Christian scholar. Um, he's a New Testament scholar, and he says he thinks this is the hardest one in the Gospels. In his learned opinion, this is the hardest one, and it is hard to explain. So forgive me, but I'm going to actually put the map up on here for you, and hopefully it'll, it'll all make sense. Here's the harmonized version of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding was at or near Bethsaida. That's, this is according to uh, Dr. Mike Lycona. In Luke, right? They crossed from the feeding. They crossed the Sea of Galilee. That's what Matthew, Mark, and John say. They intended to land at Bethsaida, according to Mark. They landed in Gennesaret, according to Matthew, Mark, and John. And Gennesaret is where they meant to go, according to John. Now, this seems confusing, right? So, Dr. Mike Lycona, his conclusion is, well, Mark is confused. Now, he's a conservative scholar. He still believes in the resurrection. He believes in all this stuff. But he just thinks that there's an error here, um, that, that, that Mark is confused. I disagree, but here's what I do agree with. You can't be at Bethsaida and cross the sea to Bethsaida while landing at Gennesaret as you intend. Like, that wouldn't make sense, right? That, that doesn't, something's wrong there. Let me give you... An explanation. So here's the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in Israel. The Jordan River flows from the north into the sea and then out the south of the sea down to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth without actually being underwater. And the, the Sea of Galilee is actually the second lowest point on earth. It's actually 700 feet below sea level when you're standing on the water's edge. It's eight miles across and 13 miles in length from north to south. But we're only concerned with the top portion of the sea because that's where all these locations are. So here's Bethsaida. This is where the feeding is said to have taken place. Then here's Gennesaret, the location they went to afterwards. So they leave Bethsaida to Gennesaret. This doesn't seem to make sense based on the passage though, right? So here's the solution. The solution is, I think, a more accurate reading of the text. Where was the feeding? Was it really at or near Bethsaida? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. In Luke, it says that they went to a city called Bethsaida. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came to him and said to him, Send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. Or are you in the city or are you in a desolate place? What they're doing is they're using the term Bethsaida in a regional sense, which was completely accepted practice and how they would use the term. Where were you? We were, oh, we were in Bethsaida. But we don't have like in America, in LA area, right? Where you have city, 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 city. But rather, we're in Bethsaida, the Bethsaida region, right? But we're actually in a deserted place. So they were not, we're sure of this, they were not in the city. So Luke says they were in a desolate place. Matthew says they were in a desolate place. Mark agrees with this. It says, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Very similar to Luke. So they have to leave to go into, into inhabited areas. They're in a desolate place, a non-city location. So the feeding was near, but not at the actual city of Bethsaida, the fishing village itself. It wasn't there. It was near it. That's number one. Number two is this. Did they really mean to land at Bethsaida? Because that's the other part that's a little confusing. Well, what does it say? Mark 6.45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he, went, while he sent the multitude away. This word to Bethsaida is pros Bethsaidon. That's the Greek for anybody who cares. And, <laughs> but pros, that's a preposition. It's a Greek preposition. It means to 
toward, at, or by, and it could it, it's uh, legitimately used. This is not this isn't magical like you know linguistical witchcraft. Okay, this is it's a legitimate use of the word to be like, how are you getting to across? Well, go the Bethsaida way. Go by Bethsaida on your way to. Hey, you'll you'll pass by the blue barn on your way over to the chicken hatchery. I don't know where you're going, but so. Why, though, I just want to justify this. Why should I take Mark as though he literally means toward Bethsaida, but not to Bethsaida? You're going to go to Gennesaret, but you're not going to go directly to Bethsaida. You're rather going to pass by Bethsaida on your way to Gennesaret. Because Mark 6.53 says this. When they'd crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Mark 6.45, he tells them to cross to the other side, to or toward or by Bethsaida. And then he has in verse 53, them landing where? Gennesaret, not Bethsaida. This seems consistent with all the other gospels, doesn't it? So Mark has them near Bethsaida, crossing toward Bethsaida and landing in Gennesaret. This harmonizes harmonizes perfectly. Let me show you the map one more time. Here's the map, Bethsaida, Gennesaret. And then we have um, what seems, I don't see anybody disagreeing on this. It seems pretty consistent that the plain of Bethsaida is where the feeding took place. You see, just below Bethsaida on the map, slightly to the right of it, there's a, a lush green area. That's a, it's, everything else is mountainous, but this is the one flat grassy area right there. That's what's called the Plain of Bethsaida. The Plain of Bethsaida, it, it, was, it was a desolate place, sort of belonging to the city of Bethsaida or associated with them. So if they were to cross the Sea of Galilee, well, they could go south or they could go west. How were they going to cross? Do they hug the coastline? Do they go uh, mid, mid to the middle of the sea? Where are they going? Well, if they're going to cross toward Bethsaida, then they'll cross like that. You'll cross on the side of the sea close to Bethsaida, as opposed to going south or some other area, to Tiberias or something like that. Does that make sense? Is this a reasonable resolution that is faithful to the text itself, faithful to the story that's being told, that's not, a, not you know... Hocus pocus. It's not hermeneutical gymnastics like some people like to say. No, it's it's reasonable. Um, number 14. Why is Matthew's genealogy incomplete? Matthew records a genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. From Abraham to Jesus. But when compared to the Old Testament genealogies, he skips a few names. Skips several names, actually. This objection is based ultimately on ignorance. It's not based on information. So let me bring a little more information. It's totally acceptable in the Jewish practice of genealogies to skip names. Now, we're not really in a genealogical culture. We don't share our genealogies by the fire. And if you had a nice long genealogy, you might start skipping names too. <laughs> it's totally acceptable. First off, you're writing a story. Do you really want to put every single name of everybody in there? Do you remember all their names? Or do you have perhaps another goal in mind? In fact, you go, well, how do you skip names? You're going to say so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. Well, then it wasn't son. It was a grandson or a great-grandson. Yes, except that they only used one word to mean all of those things. So that's proof of that is Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is the son of David. Wait a minute. He was like David's great, 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 grandson. Yes, but that's what son means. It's acceptable to skip generations. Matthew proves it because he does it in verse 1. So when he does it in like verse 7 or 10, it shouldn't be a big deal. This is why um, Matthew actually makes it clear that he does this. And he even tells us why he's doing it. He does it as a memory aid thing. So Matthew 1.17, at the conclusion of the genealogy, he tells us, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So you've got three sections, 14, 14, 14. Some people think, well, maybe this is because uh, David, uh, with Hebrew numerology, which is a a legitimate thing, the Hebrew letters are numbers as well, right? We talked about that. You're missing a letter, your number could be quite a lot off. But David, the name David, it's a three-letter name in Hebrew without the vowel signs, which they wouldn't be using. And it means 14. It equals 14 if you add those numbers up. It's possible that Matthew was, was drawing from that. That could be the case. It seems to be a memory thing. Look, we got 14 people from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. This is a memory thing. And it, it says, hey, Jesus comes from David, the royal line. That's the idea. That's the ultimate point there. But then you have another objection relating to genealogies. And the question here is, which genealogy is right? Because Matthew and Luke have different genealogies. Here's Matthew. 
not the entire genealogy of Luke, but Luke dealing, Matthew from David to Jesus, and then Luke from uh, David to Jesus. Now you'll notice right away that Luke has more names. That we already explained is because Matthew is trying to keep it down to 14. He just wants 14 selected names from each section. But you'll notice these, these names aren't the same at all. Now further up the genealogy, when you go from David to Abraham, they're the same. But when you go down from David to Jesus, they're totally different. Why is this? Well, there's a clue in the way they end their genealogies. So Matthew 116, it says, Jacob begat Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom, speaking of Mary, was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Then Luke says, Jesus being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now this we know, uh, Luke had Mary as a particular eyewitness. And, and we know this because he talks about in how he interviewed eyewitnesses and he got his account that way. He also carries information in the beginning chapters of Luke from Mary, that obviously is from Mary. It's, it's quotes from Mary. It's private things that Mary experienced that nobody else really experienced. So he got this information from her. It seems that Luke's genealogy is the genealogy of Mary to David. And Matthew's is the genealogy from Joseph to David. And so Heli would have been Mary's father and then the adopted or in-law, the, the, the son-in-law um, or the father-in-law, rather, to Joseph. This might seem a little strange. But I want to just tell you something. If I wrote down my family tree for you, you would think it was strange too. I wonder what yours would look like. I could talk to you about my, uh, my, old, my former stepdad, who's my uncle-in-law. And you would think I was contradicting myself. But you just don't know. <laughs> you just don't know my genealogy. That's the thing. And so the next question is this. Um, why is it that they would do the very un-Jewish practice of recording the, the mother's genealogy through her father? Why would they do that? Well, Jesus had a very unusual birth, didn't he? So it makes sense to have both the mother and the father's genealogy. And that seems to be the case here. So he has um, a biological descent from David through Mary. And he has the, uh, the, the, the legal descent through Joseph. And that, that seems to me to be how we would harmonize those. And now we come to the last one for today. And this is, I saved it for the last. This is Bart Ehrman's The Straw That Broke Bart's Back. Um, now, I, I don't despise Bart Ehrman or, or, or anything like that. I despise a lot of the things he says, but not him personally. Um, I, I hope the best for him, you know. But he tells over and over again in books and in study, in, uh, you know, um, what are they called? Interviews. <laughs> and online and blogs. He tells about the story of how he tried to harmonize this one particular issue in the Bible. And he seemed like he would come up with these all these explanations. And then he sent it into his professor in school. And the professor wrote back to him on the bottom of his page. Well, maybe Mark was just wrong. And this was the thing that started his faith crumbling. Because he says he was a Christian before. And so let's look at this. The, the straw that broke, Bart, broke Bart's back. Was Jesus wrong about the Old Testament? Matthew chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Now the whole story is not what we're concerned about. It's this phrase, in the time of Abiathar. He's telling a story about David, and it happened when? In the time of Abiathar the high priest. But 1 Samuel 21, I'd have to quote a lot of it to get you all this info, but it shows Ahimelech, Abiathar's father, functioning as high priest, not Abiathar. It doesn't actually identify Ahimelech as high priest, but he seems to be doing the things that the high priest does. And so he seems to be functioning in that capacity. So was Jesus wrong about the Old Testament? Now, this brings up some serious concerns to me. You know, I mean, Jesus... I don't, I don't think Jesus knew everything every moment of, of his life. I think that he grew in knowledge and wisdom and that that's part of the incarnation. He was God the entire time, but that there was a setting aside of, of, of divine knowledge uh, and submitting that to the Father. And that's a whole thing we could talk about the Trinity and the doctrines of Christ. But for him to be wrong about something is different than for him to not be aware of something, you know, for a time, whereas now he would be fully aware. So this is really kind of a struggle, right? Well, here's the solution. Jesus did not say, let's, let's point out what he didn't say. He does not say, 
while Abiathar was high priest. He says, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. There is a difference between these two things. If I said while Abiathar was high priest, the event had to happen while he was functioning as high priest. If I say in the time of Abiathar high priest, it doesn't require he was already high priest. It requires he's alive. It requires he's alive. That's just to be technically, you know, let's, let's, let's just dissect this thing. That's what it says. Number two, Abiathar became high priest as a result of David eating that bread. You see what happened next is Saul comes and he's mad at these priests for giving food to David and his men and he slaughters, he has them slaughtered and then Abiathar, he ends up becoming the high priest to David. This is the event that causes him to become high priest. So it actually makes sense for Jesus to refer to him and his high priestly duties in referencing the event that caused him to become high priest. Number three, Abiathar had a crucial role in the events of Jesus that Jesus referenced, and he was much more famous than Ahimelech as far as history goes and in the mind of the Jewish people. So Jesus refers to Abiathar, not Ahimelech, because he's the more famous of the characters, and he was there and he was alive at the time. In the time of is the translation of one Greek proposition, epi. It means toward, before, on, among, over, against, and a bunch of other things because it's a preposition, that's what they do. <laughs> they mean lots of weird things depending on context. So toward Abiathar, or in, before Abiathar, on Abiathar, among Abiathar, over, against, it means all of that stuff. So there's a lot of flexibility in the usage of the word. I do not think that Jesus is wrong here at all. Rather, he's just very, being very Jewish. He picks the, 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 the moment the guy becomes high priest, it refers to the guy as, as the, uh, in the time of Abiathar the high priest. It, it all connects with someone who's actually very well familiar with the story and what happened. The conclusion is, Jesus refers to the time of Abiathar and references, references the events that caused him to become high priest, even though Jesus isn't referring to an event that happened during Abiathar's tenure in office as high priest. Should this make your faith crumble? Should this make you start writing books and stuff like that, attacking the Bible? I don't think so. So now, at the end of three weeks, three messages dealing with these supposed contradictions and i'm glad to be moving on to something else because it just after a while you know in conclusion the bible's not full of contradictions it's true that i have not dealt with every supposed contradiction of the supposed forty thousand i found on one website that would just be a, <laughs> a journey through tedium to try to go through all that it's true that I haven't gone through every single one, but the common examples and the best examples that the skeptics give prove to be false accusations. And yes, I googled and searched and looked for the best examples they could come up with. And for years, when people have asked, told me there's contradictions in the Bible, I always add, answer, give me your best example. And so I've dealt head on with, without deception on those issues. Examining supposed contradictions results in the skeptics losing credibility and the Bible gaining credibility. This is the most important part. It's not just about the individual supposed issue. It's about this. However, some skeptics, they attack the Bible and they'll come up with a bad argument and you defeat it. So they give you another and you defeat it. And they give you another and you defeat it. And they give you another and you defeat it. And this keeps going and going and going. And after a while, they're like, you, you've got to have some bullet holes after all that stuff I shot at you. You know, the Bible, the Bible must be mistaken. But in reality, should Christian apologists be ashamed of all these explanations, all the answers to the accusations? Should I just be ashamed because you're constantly dancing? And this, is, this happens a lot. There's a lot of Christian apologists that I've heard, they don't even want to deal with these constant assaults. So they don't even talk about the supposed contradictions. It's not that they believe the Bible has contradictions. It's that they just don't want to be dancing. You know, dance for me, son. <laughs> like, like the old Western where you're just dodging bullets. They just, they're like, I'd rather deal with something more substantive. Because every time there's always another contradiction. There's always another accusation. It never ends. It's the endless debate. So should Christian apologists be ashamed of all these explanations? No, not if each explanation is reasonable. Because that's pretty much how we understand truth in life. You, you come up with a reasonable explanation and you move forward. You do it again, you do it again. That's what you do all day long in your life. In fact, I would say it is the accusers of the Bible that should be ashamed. There's sort of a double standard. At least in the mind of skeptics and even sometimes in the mind of Christians, of Bible believers. That 
you can say something about the Bible attacking it and be wrong and your credibility is still intact. And then you, you can attack the Bible and the Bible comes out to be right, but the Bible's credibility hasn't gone up at all. It's still completely doubted. And you, do, you repeat this process over and over again at some point. You should be going, you know what? I'm sort of skeptical of the skeptics now. And I'm sort of trusting of the Bible. Because it's been proven so many times over and over and over and over again. It is to me, the skeptic, in this case, the accuser, that should be ashamed. The people that are go, out, go out there and irrationally, and I'll get it on this, this very video, we'll get up online. Someone will watch 30 seconds of it. And then they will put supposed contradictions in the comments section that I've already dealt with in the video. And will they know? Will they care? No, because they're fools. Like in the biblical sense, <laughs> in the dictionary sense. Like that's, that's exactly what it means to be a fool. Is I'm going to believe and propagate untrue things and not care that it's untrue. That is so dangerous. And so we ought to now say, if these, unless I'm a total liar, <laughs> if these are the best attacks that they can come up with, can we set the issue of contradictions aside? And can we assume the Bible is innocent until proven guilty on this area because it's been defended uh, so, I think, so well in so many difficult issues? And um, yes, and we're going to do that. So we're going to be moving forward. We'll talk about some other issues, uh, archaeology and science and internal unity and um, all sorts of other fun stuff. I don't know how long the series is going to go, uh, but at the moment, what we'll do for the next uh, three weeks, because we're on break for three weeks for December, for Christmas, the holidays, I mean, and um, just kidding. And uh, after that, I'm, I'm probably actually going to start for Sunday nights. I'll start a book series, and then as I'm, because it's just a lot of work and research to prepare this stuff on the evidence for the Bible, as I prepare one of them, then I'll just kind of interrupt the book series, do that one, and then I'll do that. So it'll kind of be giving me a little bit more time to flesh this stuff out because I want to do it very well. And um, I have a mountain of stuff to uh, prepare for that so that it's not easily shot down. Yeah, I want to honor God and honor truthfulness about it. So let's pray. And then I'll take any questions you guys have. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that over and over again, the Bible, um, it stands. It stands. And there's times where it looks as though the, the scriptures would fail as we hear somebody attacking the Bible, but we haven't yet heard the response. And then we hear the response and we go, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and our faith is encouraged. And I just pray this, that for us, we would have, and all those who might be watching even later this video, that we would have a confident trust and faith in your word. It's an informed faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a tested, improved faith. We have good reason to trust your word over the skeptical attacks of man. In Jesus' name, amen.